0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to a special edition of Behind the Markets. We're going to be talking here with... Jens Nordvik, who's the founder and CEO of Ex-Anti Data, a firm specializing in macro research uh, with a lot of background on currencies, what's happening in the market. Please note, I am a registered representative of Side Fund Services. My discussion is not tied to the offers of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own, and not those of Wizards Affiliates. Jens, welcome to Behind the Markets. Oh, thanks for inviting me. The, you you picked
1: a very interesting day because we have quite a bit of news in our company today. So uh, good timing.
0: Well, <laughs> let's start right there with the news before we get to the markets. Tell us a little bit about the latest with with Ante. Yeah. Well, so we we've been
1: uh, up and running for five and a half years. Uh, we are serving institutional investors globally, uh, so big asset managers, macro hedge funds, and so forth. We try to really have uh, an approach that is uh, deep on data, but with uh, a human touch as well. So that's what we do for institutions. And what we announced today was that we've just formed an advisory board with some uh, very senior executives from uh, tech firms, because we want to branch out and do a a product that is for a large audience as opposed to a very niche institutional audience. And uh, we want to really make that a a, f- a fully tech focused venture and that's why we have that new advisory board so i'm very excited to work with some heavy hitters in that space <laughs>
0: and learn how to really do it thank you so what is, so what is the you know if you if people know you for macro data and market insights what is the tech focus going to bring is it what other what type of insights you think you, you can bring to that market
1: well, so we have, uh, we have some ideas, and I can't reveal all the details, but we have some ideas. There's going to be some more details coming out and coming once about essentially uh, putting the type of tools that professional investors use in front of everybody. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of people who use uh, tools that have been around for a long time. Yahoo Finance still has like 40 million users per month. Uh, so we think we can really supply something to a big audience that's really interested in understanding the market better uh, using some hardcore technology that's similar to what professional investors use, but it's very hard to access unless you just pay a ton of money for it. So that's the, uh, that's the essence of the idea.
0: There's things called terminals um, by, a, by a famous company in New York. I have a feeling, uh, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't name any names. I didn't, I didn't either. Uh, but we're always looking to reduce costs. So uh, I'm sure a lot of firms will be interested in whatever you produce there. Um, so let's talk markets. I mean, I, I know during COVID, a lot of your team's focus shifted um, from what the typical indicators you watch to really tracking the virus. How is that dynamic shifted? Is, is COVID still the only and number one focus for everybody? Well, so we, we did a COVID daily from January 2020
1: and then I think up until Christmas uh, 2020, right? So almost a full year, we had a daily uh, COVID forecasting update. Uh, and then this year, we tried to change the focus, uh, but we cannot <laughs> just forget about the virus. The virus is yeah. still an incredible macro driver. And I think uh, the last two weeks is a very good example of that. If we look at the questions we're getting in from clients, I think more than half of them are Delta related, right? So we we continue to have a focus in the last last week or so. We've been very aggressively focused on the China wave. Is the China Delta wave something that's really going to rock the boat? And you can kind of see in the markets uh, even today, like the China concerns are are, are definitely at the forefront. So we're still very focused. Uh, We don't think it's like the single dominant driver, but it's a very, very important driver still. So we have to keep our hands on the ball.
0: I know talking with you privately in the past, we've talked about the importance of the the attractiveness of the China market. Um, And, you know, they've done some things to impact the equity sentiment right so the uh the actions taken against some of these these tech companies the clampdown that the the education companies the ipo other things is changing some of the sentiment towards equities what do you think about investing in china in the currency markets the fixed income markets which we've talked about in the past what's your thoughts in china today
1: yeah i remember we had detailed discussions about the chinese bond market last year and 2020, even if the virus started in China, it ended up being kind of like a sweet spot year for China in the sense that uh, their economy recovered quickly. Uh, they had higher yields than all other markets, uh, all other major markets, because the yields collapsed to zero everywhere else. And they also had some specific things going on in their balance of payments, right? The, they didn't have any tourism coming out of the country, like all the Chinese cur- tourists that we're used to seeing in New York and Pereira and Rome and everywhere in the world, they disappeared, right? So that supported the balance of payments. All those things generated a, a very strong period for, for the Chinese currency that lasted a bit into this year. And then a lot of things have happened, right? Um, global economy has started to recover. Uh, global yields have started to to move in q one although that 's in question now and and then we have the, um, the is situation you 're describing with incredible volatility in the Chinese equity market were linked to policies that seem kind of counterintuitive to a lot of um, uh, foreigners. Uh, I think the bond story is a little bit different, like the people involved in the bonds market. Uh, do it for yield purposes and so forth. But overall, uh, the, China around, the China story is much more complicated now. Uh, we're not in the sweet spot. In fact, we could talk about that more, but you can argue that the countries around the world that have elimination strategy, they don't want to have any COVID cases. Uh, they really are facing a challenge here with Delta. It's, it's very hard to keep it at zero. And there are other countries where they're so far into their pandemic, they might have a lot of vaccine immunity. They might have a, a lot of natural immunity. So some smaller case waves don't really matter so much more. So in a, in a way, China has gone from being like the leading country, came out of the, the crisis the quickest, had a very strong recovery to now actually being one of the most vulnerable countries uh, to the virus. So things have really changed a lot. In the last um, six to nine months, I would say.
0: Well, that's interesting. Uh, let Let's talk a little bit more. Who are the countries that you think you know? You talk about this elimination strategy. who Who are the countries at the heart of that beyond China?
1: Yeah. So the key point I would make is that we are so used to looking at the news and looking at okay, who has a big spike in cases, right? At this phase of the pandemic, I think that's the wrong approach, right? So we can have some jurisdictions where they have a big spike in cases, but they are very well vaccinated. And therefore, it doesn't really have a big impact on the economy. Uh, Israel, UK, examples of that. Uh, I'm not trying to sort of say the health consequences are not serious, but it's just a different thing for the economy. And then... What really does matter is uh, what strategy each country has. And the, the countries that have elimination strategy or strategy, they might call it something else, where they really try not to have any cases at all, uh, they need to do lockdowns, even if there's a couple of ca- cases, right? So they have a situation where the economy is just a- incredibly sensitive to even small uh, waves, and that's what we are seeing in, in places like Australia. I think Australia is probably the most uh, stark example right now where they, they have some case growth, small relative to many other countries, but they've locked down significant parts of the economy. They have a hard time getting under control and uh, we can end up in a situation where we have multi-month long lockdowns and and really are, are going to see significant damage on the economy and and right at the time when people thought okay now we're going to finally be finished with COVID right they, they are facing this uh, pretty significant impact so those economies are vulnerable and everything that's kind of get turned on its head right the we can, we can look at okay who's in a different who's in a totally different camp now uh, uh we, we've seen terrible pictures from countries like India and Indonesia this year, where they've had very big COVID waves in the last couple of months, is entirely possible, and I think investors should be open-minded, that perhaps the waves that they had were so big that they now actually have a lot of natural immunity in the population, and then combined with them vaccinating the most vulnerable parts of the population will actually mean that the worst might be behind them, right? Right. So it's sort of ironic that the countries that have in a way done the best really avoided uh, having any big outbreaks now, they are actually the ones that are facing the most challenging situation on a forward-looking basis.
0: And that's the the big open question as our kids get ready to go back to school is what is the U.S. policy going to be? Do do you think we're going to be locking down the schools in the next few months?
1: No, I think... uh, we, we have so much data that hit the news media all the time. And you can always cut uh, the data in a certain way where you tell a certain narrative. Uh, we try to look at data very carefully. We've crunched the U.S. data and we've crunched the U.K. data very carefully to sort of think about that uh, child issue. And I, I think it's hard to find any strong evidence that Delta is, is like significantly different for children than the other strains um, so, I think we've come to a point where um, the vulnerable parts of the population are uh, well vaccinated in most jurisdictions, and uh, I think also the balance, the policy balance, is different. It's it's everybody realizes that there is a very significant cost to lockdown, and perhaps especially uh, in terms of keeping people out of schools. Uh, so, I think the bar for for shutting down schools is very high. And then I would also note that uh, we are probably going to get to vaccinating the younger cohorts soon. So I think by October, uh, we'll start to vaccinate uh, the much younger cohorts down to six years old. And uh, that's going to have an impact as well. So I think the uncertainty mostly pertains to the period until then.
0: As a father of a six-year-old and a nine-year-old girl, I, I sure hope you are correct um, and that they are back in school and, and enjoying that. So hopefully uh, hopefully that all works. We're, we're, let me just reintroduce our guest. We're talking with Jens Nordvig, CEO, founder of Exante Data, a, a sort of macro-focused firm um, with a lot of interesting insights. Jens, you know, you've had some specialty in the currency markets. Talk about what you see in the global, in, in sort of GT sort of called the, the developed currencies. Um, if there's, there's a market you said to focus on, I think the volatility on currencies has come way down from historical. Um, a lot of people came in this in this year expecting a weak dollar with all the issues going on. We've had a strong dollar to some people's surprise. What, what do you see as the big drivers? What do you see generally going on in the currency markets? Yeah, so um, we, we've had, obviously...
1: tremendous macro volatility that came out of the COVID shock and the recovery from the shock, right? So it's almost like we had the bear uh, dynamic that lasted a couple of months, and then we had a bull dynamic that really lasted from around May up until a couple of months ago. Uh, And now we're in a much more kind of uh, gray zone, I would say, where markets are really really trying hard to search for direction, but it's very hard to find the direction because there's so many counter forces. And the most important variable uh, for macro assets, uh, being it currencies, equity markets, interest rates, is really what's going on with global growth expectations. Uh, That tends to dominate uh, many other variables. And I think the problem for, for macro assets is that we're kind of plateauing expectations were improving for really about 12 months. And now each country is different. Like China expectations have been revised down. U.S. expectations are probably starting to be revised down very recently. Uh, European expectations are still going in the right direction. So it's just a very mixed bag. And that lack of underlying trend on a global scale means that the macro trends are also uh, much, much harder to spot and much more country-specific and much more tied to individual pieces of news. Like we can see it, okay, payrolls move the dollar in one direction. Then we have University of Michigan moves the dollar in, in, in the opposite direction, right? So we've become much more sensitive to like the latest piece of news. I would also make the point that in, um, if we just focus on euro-dollar, which is still the most important currency uh, in the world, uh, how is euro-dollar trading? It's almost like we've moved into an environment where euro dollar is uh, highly, highly correlated to what's going on in terms of sh- uh, short interest rates in the U.S. So if you look at the two year rate or the five year rate, um, how they are moving literally uh, tells you what euro dollar is doing. That's not always the case. That that correlation can be very um, unstable. As you know, (laughs) uh, financial market correlations are known for being highly unstable. But when we have periods where markets are really starting to think about, okay, uh, is the Fed about to do something significant, i.e. start a tightening cycle via taper or via actual interest rate liftoff? That variable becomes very important. It tends to be the period in which that variable is the most important. And it feels to me like we've actually entered that phase uh, for the first time in a little while and um, other variables for for euro dollar become a bit of a sideshow. So if you can forecast uh, when the Fed is going to lift off, you can also forecast euro dollar in the next couple of months because those two things are very very closely tied at this specific part of the cycle.
0: So if you're if you think the Fed is going to be tighter, it's going to be a strong strong dollar. Um, if the if the Fed's going to well, the headlines this week started to see the taper is coming, Jackson Hole. They're going to start talking about it. And, uh, you know, we've been in the camp. Professor Siegel, who I work with the last 20 years, have been in the camp saying Fed's got to tighten much more aggressively than they are. So that, uh, that might be a stronger dollar. Yeah. So if, if you have a
1: macro view that essentially says uh, the U.S. economy is going to be strong, there's going to be some inflation pressure the Fed wants to respond to. And I think what we have learned in June is that uh, the Fed is not willing to uh, accept as much overshoot as was perhaps uh, believed early in the year, right? So everybody's talking about 2.1 or 2.3 or maybe a tiny bit more, but not 2.5% inflation as as what they're actually aiming for. So if you're in the camp that that thinks that those pressures are going to lead the Fed to do their tapering quickly – and then also uh, consider raising rates. That say, say you thought uh, a rate hike in Q3 next year uh, would be the central case, um, then I think that would be a very important driver of the dollar view, and more important than normal. Like we're in the cycle where those shifts in rates would uh, should be given a disproportionate amount of weight, and that obviously would matter for euro dollar. And uh, other crosses that are very much driven by dollar direction. Aussie dollar is another one there.
0: A, a few months ago, uh, it's sort of early June. I remember seeing you you tweet about the yen, which is the currency I follow closely, and and it's sort of one of these currencies that has been described as a safe haven asset. And it's sort of always sort of an interesting question of why is the yen a safe haven asset? You know, with all the all the debts to GDP. Now they've been managing that, you know, with the Bank of Japan buying all the bonds. Um, but talk about a the history of safe haven currencies there, what you think is going on, and any changing correlations you see with the yen, anything interesting happening in your view on on what's going on there?
1: Yeah, so I think there's sort of two um, aspects to the um, the safe haven characteristic that has traditionally been there. So it used to be the case that we had like a lot of carry trading going on in the currency market, right? And uh, the main funding currency for that was the yen. It was highly liquid, and interest rates were always zero. And then when you had risk aversion, people had to close down their carry position, and that led to essentially short covering in the yen that supported the yen. So that's sort of one dimension. The other dimension is more macro. It used to be the case that the yen had the lowest interest rates in the world, and therefore, when you had something bad happening in the world – other interest rates went down and that meant actually interest rate differentials went in the yen's favor and that also generated yen strength and um, so that's sort of how it used to be but all interest rates went to zero in 2020 right so there's no difference in carry really to speak of definitely not in the short end uh, and some countries even have negative interest rates so actually in japanese interest rates are higher than those countries so the arguments that uh, were very powerful arguments uh, and especially into the global financial crisis, really drove like a huge yen appreciation around then, they're not really as, 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 as powerful anymore. And, and what we've witnessed is that when the equity market goes down, although we don't have many days to, to really test that out recently, but the days that have been bad days or the weeks that have been bad weeks over the last 12 months, they don't generate much juice for the yen. And it kind of fits with those macro shifts that I've outlined. Um, so uh, that, that sensitivity is, is less clear. That said, okay, global growth I just mentioned, right? The, the yen is still an anti-growth currency in the sense that uh, when global growth is very strong, uh, the yen does tend to uh, underperform. And what we're seeing, again, very recently in the market here in early August, is that when there's concerns about global growth, even if it doesn't really take the equity that market down very much, the yen is still behaving like an anti-growth currency and it benefits from concerns about global growth. So the correlations are different, uh, but it's, it's not like night and day. Like there's some element of, 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 of um, yeah, risk aversion, safe haven that still applies, but it's less mechanical than it used to be. And it, I, I would argue it is more tied to global growth than to the equity variable now.
0: And and is the function as much narrative driven or do you think there's like real money that's like the Japanese currency trader that's closing these hedge fund traders, or how much of that is is narrative driven versus like real flows driven?
1: Well, so like um we track the Japanese capital flows intensely. We have proprietary indicators that try to really understand what's going on. So uh it, It can be the case that certain Japanese institutions, uh, which are very big in terms of balance sheet, when they do an asset allocation shift, that can have a pretty big impact on the yen, right? So everybody kind of knows about the the public pension fund, GBIF, that has a very big portfolio and a very big currency piece in their portfolio, and they don't tend to hedge the currency piece. So when they do stuff in currency space it can it can um, have a big influence. And probably there was an influence in Euro yen last year where they bought a lot of of European uh, bonds essentially throughout 2020 had a big impact on Euro yen. You can go and look at the Euro yen chart. It's probably one of the best trends in in FX last year. And that came out institutional flow. So those are the dynamics we pay a lot of attention to in addition to sort of pure macro. When is that asset allocation shift going on from a very big player and that can generate sustained move, and uh, we saw a good example of that last year.
0: Uh, great, so a- any any other places of the market you're focused on as you go into ending the summer, into the closing half of the year, What any, any expectations you wanna highlight for people?
1: Well, so I, th- I think we're gonna continue to have a differentiation between countries with different strategies uh, towards handling COVID, right? So the countries that have elimination strategy, they're going to have rolling lockdowns. They're going to be vulnerable. Uh, The countries that feel that they have a form of immunity or at least a a very thorough protection of the vulnerable cohorts of the population, therefore more tolerant towards cases, they're probably going to have more aggressive reopening and and more sustained confidence come back. So we think there's going to be some differentiation there. And then there's a dollar dimension that really is in play. Um, what happens to U.S. data, I think, in the next two to three months is a very big macro question. Nobody cared about the wiggles in the U.S. data. Last year, we all kind of sort of knew there was a big underlying trend. But here, uh, we really have to be precise. So was the signal from the Michigan conference survey a real signal or a false signal? I'm quite skeptical of that was a real signal about what's going on in the economy. But we have to watch the data very carefully. We have to watch the alternative data very carefully because it matters a huge deal whether the Fed is going to get more confident that it can tighten or whether it's actually going to take a step back. That's going to be the key driver here.
0: Well, Jens, this has been a great conversation. Glad we got it on a day with big news for data. We're looking forward to watching what you're doing uh, and, and look forward to another update from you as you have more you can share publicly.
1: Thanks so much. Thanks for the invitation. I'm looking forward to keeping you very up to
0: date. <laughs> yeah, all right. This has been Jens Nordvig. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM XM 132. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on Sirius XM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show.
1: For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.